0: Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you above all beings are worthy to be praised. So we lift our voices to you this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would graciously receive our worship. Lord, our hearts are overflowing with gratitude to you for your goodness and kindness to us this week. Lord, even the difficulties we faced are measured, measured. And perfectly executed and brought our way by your loving and wise hand. And we rejoice that in Christ, all is well with us. And we rejoice too that Christ has paid the debt we owed, that the wrath that we had uh, accrued, your wrath for our sin, was drank to the dregs by Christ for us. So that in Him, there no longer remains any wrath towards us, but only love and joy and graciousness and kindness that you in Christ are kindly disposed towards us. And we rejoice in that. And we pray, Lord, that our time together in your word would be helpful, Lord, that you would help us to see clearly uh, how you work in this world and how you are unfolding your plan to redeem the world for your ever for their everlasting joy and for your eternal glory. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's begin this morning by turning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing a study, which will be a three-week study, on signs, wonders, and redemption. And last week, we saw uh, that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is one continual storyline. So we, we don't believe that Somehow, in the New Testament, uh, God reworks Plan A. You know, it's Plan A 5 or whatever, or Plan B is enacted in the New Testament. No, God is—he has one plan that began all the way back in Genesis three fifteen, um, where God promised to send a seed, and that seed would uh, be the Messianic seed who would save the world, crush the serpent's head. And the Old Testament builds and builds on this one promise that runs throughout all of Scripture. When we come to the New Testament, we saw that as God's plan is unfolding, God punctuates key points as in this plan with signs and wonders. And we we really saw that in the book of Acts. All right, so we looked at four places in the book of Acts where we have uh, these just episodes of signs and wonders. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19 are the key places that we see signs and wonders happening in the book of Acts. And they all sort of orbit around those chapters. And what we have there is God affirming that He is, in fact, saving Jews, but He's also going to save the Samaritans in chapter 8. Wonder of wonders. Um, he saves the Samaritans, and then in chapter ten we see that the Spirit of God is going to indwell Gentiles like you and me, and God in His kindness affirms uh, this this point in His redemptive plan by sending the Spirit again, and there are signs and wonders that happen in, in Acts ten and eleven, and we really we we looked at Peter's astonishment and the apostles that the gentiles are now included in this plan of redemption right and we remember we saw peter and he's he's talking to the apostles and and they say what were you doing with all these gentiles and peter tells the story and he says the same thing that happened to us on pentecost happened to them and who was i to stand in god's way and he said, if you want to, you can go ahead and do that. But I'm not going to do that, Peter said. And then the apostles say, okay, I guess the same thing is happening to them that happened to us. I guess God is saving the Gentiles as well. And then in 19, we saw that God's um, redemptive plan envelops even old covenant believers. So there's no, there's no, there's no other way to be saved than through Christ, and, and God affirms this one way uh, through various signs and wonders. Specifically, here we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And so we, we, we really emphasize progress, progress as in God's plan, is a pro, uh, God's p- progress and unfolding. Unfolding, God's plan is unfolding throughout history, and God is progressively revealing himself as history unfolds. Right, and so when we parachute into uh, Exodus 14, right, we're parachuting, parachuting into a specific epic season in history where God is going to redeem Israel from Egyptian slavery. Right, none of us anticipate that God is going to split, um, you know, the Red River for us to walk up into Arkansas. You know, we don't think about that. We don't anticipate that. We understand that God did use signs and wonders in that specific season for a specific purpose, right? And so we also saw an important hermeneutical principle when we're thinking about the book of Acts. Uh, it's the difference between description and prescription. Uh, we, we made the point that we don't go to narrative portions of text, typically, to get um, prescriptions or instructions on how to live because the Bible is full, full of description, And all from you know from Genesis to Revelation, there are events that are described, and we have God's unfolding plan of redemption described for us. And it's dangerous for us to look at narratives and say, "This is what God wants me to do." Right? And we all intuit that principle um, specifically when it comes to marriage. And we used Abraham and the patriarchs; their polygamy. None of us read uh, Jacob's story and think. Maybe we sh- I should have multiple wives. Right, we don't think that. Because we know that from a prescriptive text, Genesis 2.24, God laid it out very clearly that His desire was that a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right, that's a prescriptive text that prescribes for us what marriage is to be. Right, so that's the difference between description and prescription. Now, I want to remind you, I want to not really remind you, I want to finish up something I didn't get to say uh, last week. So, turn with me to the book of Acts. Sorry, I told you to turn to Ephesians, then I'm telling you to turn to Acts. I just want you to see this, because it's an important point to to make, and it's important for us to see when we think about God's unfolding plan. In the book of Acts, uh, Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, right? And, and the key text in Peter's sermon is from Joel chapter 2. And so Peter is preaching and he's saying that Joel 2 is being fulfilled at the moment of his preaching. And now we sort of enter, enter, drop in here and we ask the question what does God want from us right now? Right, how does God want us to live at this particular point in redemptive history? Uh, if God's plan is unfolding, we want to know how we ought to live. And I concluded last week by saying the, the way we know how God wants us to live is by looking at his clear prescription for us, specifically Matthew 28, right? Make disciples of all nations, right? That's, that's the, the main priority of the church right now of Christian, Christians worldwide is to make disciples of the nations, all right, this is a season in God's redemptive plan when Gentiles like you and me are, are flooding into the new covenant and enjoying the benefits of the new covenant, coming to know Christ. All right, we can read Romans 11. But the question then is well, why don't we see signs and wonders right now? Right, why, why do we not see them as frequently as, as we saw? Um, in this specific redemptive era in the book of Acts. Well, I, I just want to show you from Acts 2 that as we look at God's plan unfolding, uh, we, we know that signs and wonders, we don't see them right now, um, but they will return at some point in history. Right, if you look at Joel 2, Joel 2, if you look at Acts 2 and in verse 17... Peter is is preaching and he's saying, what you're seeing is what was predicted by the prophet Joel. And it shall be that in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. This is what we see in the book of Acts. God pouring out his spirit on mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your men shall dream dreams Even on my slaves or bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. We'll talk about that some this morning. And then verse 19, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. The question is, we see, son, we see that the Spirit is poured out on the church, on believers in the book of Acts. We saw that last week. We see that sons and daughters prophesy. We'll talk about that some this week. But what about verse 19? And I will grant wonders in the sky and signs on the earth below Um, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. When will this occur? We don't see that happening in the book of Acts. I think that this this will happen when Christ returns for the second time and He unfurls His wrath upon the world during what's called the Great Tribulation. And at that point, because of the graciousness of God, signs and wonders will return, right? There are two witnesses that we read about who will preach and proclaim the truth, and they will do signs and wonders in the heavens. And because of that work, men will see and repent and believe the gospel. Gentiles will believe. Mainly Jewish people who are are partially hardened now will flood into the kingdom. And so the point I want to make there is that it's God's way, right? The question is, what is God's way? How does God work? Well, it's God's way to punctuate certain points in His unfolding plan of redemption with signs and wonders. So when when we say that signs and wonders aren't the norm right now, I mean, I'm not saying that they'll never happen again. They're reserved for a future point. But God doesn't just um, unfold signs and wonders and, you know, at every point of every day. Right? These are specific um, purposeful um, signs that God gives to punctuate seasons of extraordinary, um, ex- season, extraordinary moments in God's unfolding plan of redemption. Okay, okay. so that's enough for review. Sorry, that was too long to review. One of the lessons that you, you, know, you have to learn in teaching is if you review your lesson from last week long enough, then it becomes you're just repeating the same lesson that you taught last week. I don't want to do that, so let's, let's jump into Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this morning what I want to do is really in a, in a, along the same line of, as last week, looking at how God's plan is unfolding. So I've titled this, this lesson, Signs, Wonders, and Redemption, Understanding the Function of the Miraculous in Building God's Church. All right, So last, last week we were from Old Testament really to New Testament. And this week we're just going to zero in in what's called the apostolic era. right? When the apostles were alive, what, what's happening in the church uh, in the lives of the apostles? And I think a key text for us is Ephesians 2. So I'm going to read for us verse 11 uh, down to verse 22. So follow along with me. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now if you think about what we just talked about, the, the Gentiles now in Acts 10 are being included in God's promised plan. And this is what Paul is talking about here. You you Gentiles were at one time cut off. You were alienated from God. Now you're included in this promised plan of redemption. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew-Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For For through him... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now verse 19 is where I want us to really focus. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. right. Verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I want us to zero in on verse 20 this morning, and that's going to, I'm going to use this as the outline for uh, this, the lesson. Paul uses the metaphor of a building to capture the growth of the church and the establishment of the church in the apostolic era. And that continues into our present situation, and we'll talk about that to conclude. But at this very beginning phase Paul wants to capture what's happened with Jews and Gentiles using a metaphor, using an illustration. And he uses the illustration of a house. And it's important that we get this. Because it, what it helps us to do is it helps us to have places to put all of these things that are happening in the early church. Right? You read the book of Acts. You read 1 and 2 Corinthians. Uh, you read, just read some of the other epistles in, in the New Testament and you think, there are some strange things happening, right? These are things that are happening that I don't see at Calvary Bible Church on Sunday morning, right? Why is that? Well, what I want to do and what I wanted to do last week and this morning especially is give you a room to put all these things, right? Give you a way to think about what's happening with signs and wonders specifically in the establishment of the church. And Paul's metaphor that he uses to capture this is a building and he gives. First, the foundation of the building. When you think of what is the foundation of the church, what do you think of? Christ. That's what I think of too. Right? We usually just think of Christ. And that's, that's great. It's good. But I want you to see that Paul here doesn't just think of Christ when he thinks of a foundation. He thinks of three Things, three stones, right? He says the church is built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. Christ is a a stone in the foundation, but he's the what? The cornerstone, right? He's the stone that's laid that establishes um, the, he levels out and establishes the direction of the rest of the foundation. Without that stone, no, nothing else is going to work. Right? So the, the foundation of the church then is Christ the cornerstone, the apostles, and the prophets. Right? And as we see in verses 21 and 22, the whole edifice that's built up off of that foundation is the church. And we're going to see that Peter calls us each living stones. And we're being crafted into this edifice. Okay, now here's an important point. If you misunderstand who Christ is, your foundation is going to be messed up, right? If you misunderstand who the apostles are and what their role was, your foundation is going to be messed up. If you misunderstand who the prophets are, your foundation is going to be messed up. In your church building, you are going to have cracks all over the place, Right? And you're going to be able to look around and you're just going to see it and you're going to think something is wrong here. Right? So it is crucial then that we understand Christ, the apostles, and the prophets. And I want to just suggest to you this morning that signs and wonders functioned in a very specific way to establish these foundation stones of the church. And if we try to. And if we misunderstand, rather, how signs and wonders function today, we're going to misunderstand how this foundation works, right? We're going to, our whole ministry is going to just be building a foundation. It's like at some point, you've got to move on, you're right? The foundation's laid, build the house, right? Okay. So, how does Paul think of Christ as the cornerstone? The first, most important stone in the building or in this, this whole structure is Christ, the cornerstone, because Christ sets the leveling. He, he, he makes sure the foundation is what it ought to be. So then the question I want to ask is, how do signs and wonders function to establish Christ as the cornerstone? Turn with me to, back to Acts 2. I want to read one verse for you. Actually, it's a few verses, but. One verse I forgot to mention when I was doing my review was verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, all of them. Call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And then verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, what is the function of signs, miracles, wonders in the life of Christ? As far as Peter's understanding, in verse 22, it is to establish, confirm, that Jesus is the true Messiah. That He's the cornerstone. He is the one that was to come. He is the one in whom all of the messianic promises, the seed promise of Genesis 3.15, is going to find uh, its culmination. right In this one. And then verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's our unfolding plan of God, right? You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Perhaps the greatest sign and wonder to ever be experienced was the the wonder of the resurrected Christ, right? Right? The sign that authenticated Jesus as the cornerstone and as the foundation and the Messiah was the resurrection. Alright? So, what, we're wanting to, what I'm wanting to show you there is just simply what you already know. Right? That the signs and wonders that Christ accomplished confirmed Him as who He was. I mean, you could look at the whole book of John. Right? The book of John is laid out as an argument for Jesus' identity, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God incarnate. And, and John lays out his argument with eight specific signs that Jesus accomplished. And as you work through these, you see that Jesus, He turned water to wine, He raised the dead, um, He fed the hungry, He walked on water. All of those things were signs meant to convince. The, the original audience, and us today, that Jesus is truly the Messiah. All of this established Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, if we go back to Ephesians, what we see that here is that Paul is actually referencing Psalm 118, there's another reference to Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, when he uses the word cornerstone, and we don't have enough time to unpack all of this, but what I want you to see there is that the imagery of a cornerstone is actually part of God's unfolding plan. So these things just work together. And in God's plan, His, his method was to lay Christ as the cornerstone. And He wants you to believe that and know that and rest on that um, because He's revealed it to us and He's affirmed it by signs and wonders. I don't think any of us doubt Christ as the cornerstone, so we'll move on. Second, back in Ephesians 2, Christ says the second foundational stone is the foundational stone of the apostles, having built on the foundation of the apostles. Now, you remember that when Jesus was in the upper room the night before his crucifixion, he promised his 12 disciples that the Holy Spirit would come, and that these men would be used to carry out God's unfolding plan. Now the question is, who were these apostles? Who were the apostles? We're all familiar with the argument that apostles are still alive today. Right? That's a, we, we've experienced that. We know people who think that apostles are still alive and functioning today. We see it on church signs. Uh, we hear it on TV. Um, but who were they? Well, first, the word apostle simply means one who is sent. It was used as a a messenger. So we send a a, a messenger from Calvary Bible Church to Living Hope Bible Church. Uh, We could biblically call that person an apostle. We could do that. We would would not capitalize the A, though, right? That's the difference. Um, So there were capital A apostles and lowercase a apostles. Now, when Paul, in Ephesians 2, is talking about apostles being the foundation, he's not talking about lowercase a apostles. He's talking about a specific group of apostles that had a specific role. These were select men commissioned by Christ to be his witnesses and representatives in the world. And they were specifically to be revelatory agents. All right, that's important. Apostles were revelatory agents. God spoke through these apostles in John 42, 26, not John 42, John 14, 26. um, Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And do you remember what he tells the apostles? The Holy Spirit is going to do what? He's going to bring to mind. All the things that I've told you. And he'll also teach you all things. Now, why do you think the apostles needed the Holy Spirit to teach them all things? Did they get it when they were with Jesus? <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, we, we saw last week that one of the problems of humanity in general, but specifically the apostles, is they wanted to live in a different season of redemption. Right? They were not totally content with where God had placed them in his unfolding plan of redemption. So they wanted to be on the kingdom reign side, right? not on the um, missionary, wilderness, crucifixion side. Right? That's not the side they wanted to be on. And we tend to do the same thing. right? We want to live in a signs and wonder um, kind of miraculous era, whereas our job right now is not to be going around raising the dead. Our job is to make disciples of the nations, bring in Gentiles, beckon them to come in. And so the apostles then were promised by Christ that the Spirit would come, teach them all things. And and, and we know that the Spirit did in fact do that because we have the New Testament. right? The apostles are the ones who wrote the New Testament. And so God miraculously guided them and kept them, so that what they spoke and wrote was exactly what God would have them to speak and write they were revelatory agents but they were also the overseers of revelatory gifts and i'm going to make a case for that in just a minute but first let me give some specific qualifications for an elder for an elder for an apostle all right I don't think our elders will meet these qualifications. (laughs) If they think they do, they may not meet our qualifications for eldership. (laughs) Okay, what were the qualifications of an apostle? First, he had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Second, he had to be personally appointed by Jesus. And I can give you scripture references if you're interested. And third he had to possess the supernatural ability to perform signs and wonders. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. By 1 Corinthians 12, I mean 2 Corinthians 12. (laughs) I'm skipping around a little bit because my time is depleting. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12. This is an important important verse remember the Corinthian church had a lot of issues and in verse 12 Paul is in chapter 12 in prior chapters Paul has had to defend his own apostleship because it's being questioned but Paul in chapter 12 and verse 12 says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles do you see that in the text I just want you to connect that with the, importance, uh, the important qualification of a, an apostle. He was given the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles. If we were to flip back to Acts 2, we would see. I'm going to do that because this is another important passage. Acts 2 and verse 43. After Pentecost, verse 43 describes that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Rightfully so. And many wonders and signs were taking place, get this, through the apostles. Many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. There are other passages that that use this sort of terminology to talk about signs and wonders and miracles. They were specifically, an, an apostle had this gift. He had this ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles. And often, the people around him in his orbit could do the same thing. We see that with Philip, chapter 8. He's performing signs and wonders. And we could just go through the list. But it's important to see that these signs and wonders and, and other revelatory gifts were happening within the orbit of the apostolic ministry. And that's because God had not only assigned to the apostles the task of revelation and overseeing revelation, But they were also the ones who oversaw the churches. Apostles had the important responsibility to make sure and and institute health in the church, to make sure the church was growing, to combat false teachers, but also to regulate the use of revelatory gifts like tongues. So let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 12. I just want to show you that this is, in fact, the case. There are passages that speak to tongues and prophecy uh, that are important passages for us to understand. But I, I think that on top of that, it's important that we understand that the apostles' role was to make sure that this revelatory, these revelatory gifts were being used in a way that was actually accomplishing God's purposes. At this season, God was the New Testament was being composed, that it wasn't completed yet. Uh, there was this this new epic in God's plan of uh, redemption. And and remember back in Joel in Acts 2, the prophecy was not that there would be a new school of prophets, but actually that your sons and your daughters would prophesy. All right? So it expands to include a, a number of people. Not everyone, but a lot more than just the school of the prophets. But in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we see... That Paul is overseeing what's happening in Corinth, and he wants to address this issue with gifts, with sign gifts in particular. And so he begins. If you let's look at chapter twelve and verse seven. This is an important verse. But each, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So fundamentally, the gifting of the spirit is for the common good. That includes every gift of the spirit, right? If you are a gifted um, servant in the church, um, teacher, whatever whatever gift you have, it's meant to be used for the edification of other people, right? So the fruit of the Spirit right, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, maybe another one or two. <laughs> um, but all of those are meant to be used outwardly, right? They're uh, the gifting of the Spirit is meant to edify, to build other people up. And what had happened in Corinth is that people were calling what they had the gift of the Spirit and using it for their own benefit. Let me just be clear, really quickly: this speaking in tongues is established in Acts two as a divine, as a as a revelatory gift. In Acts 2, the people were able to speak uh, miraculously in the language of the people around them. It was an intelligible language, known language. And the Spirit was empowering the people to do this and to proclaim the gospel truth in the tongues of people uh, in their midst. This is a revelatory gift. But... Like every good thing, it can be twisted. And what was happening in Corinth is this gift was being twisted um, to to be used on individuals rather than edifying the church. And so Paul's clear the point of spiritual gifts is edification. And then we get to chapter 14 and we see, um, let's read chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Seek these things out but especially that you may prophesy. And and to be clear, what he means here is a spirit-empowered utterance of revelation. This is new revelation. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue, notice that this is a singular tongue. It's not plural. Everywhere that you see tongues in Scripture, it's plural. This is a singular use of tongue. And I want to say that Paul is being sarcastic here, and I'll, I'll show you why I think that's the case. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Okay, just really quickly. What is the function of the spiritual gifts? What are they meant to do? If you speak in a tongue, the question is, does it really edify anybody? And Paul's going to say, absolutely not. Verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. But look at verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Jump down to verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the, by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. If you're speaking gibberish, no one is going to be edified by what you're saying. No one's going to know what you're talking about. And then verse, um, verse twelve. So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That this gift is meant to be used for the edification of the church. And then verse seventeen. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the person is not edified. Verse 19. or We can read verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Right, he's, being, he's being sarcastic. This is Pauline sarcasm. He's like this in Galatians. Um, he's like this with the issue of circumcision. All right. um, he's saying here, if you're, if you're saying that you have this miraculous gift of speaking in a tongue, and you do it, and no one understands what you're talking about, you are not building up the church. You're not edifying the body. The goal is to edify. Incidentally, not incidentally, this is intentionally, the word edify is the word for building up, as in building a building on what? A foundation. Right? of the apostles and prophets in Christ. right? So the point is that the edifice would be built up. If you're using spiritual gifts on yourself, that is not the point, which indicates that the gift that you think you have is actually not a gift of the Spirit that you think you have. Does that make sense? When Christ's Spirit is indwelling a believer, His goal and aim in life is to build others up. And Paul is just sarcastically saying, you think you have something, but you're not building other people up. And he doesn't come down clearly and say, this is what the origin of that spirit is. But if it's not of the spirit, right, use your imagination. Where does it come from? And the point here that I want to get into is not what is tongues, okay? That's, that's not what I'm trying to establish. What I want you to see is that apostles, Paul here, is regulating the gifts of the spirit, That is an important principle. The the apostle is regulating the gifts of the Spirit. He's overseeing them. He's making sure that they're used appropriately. And he's rebuking those who are misusing the gifts. All right. We have to move on. So... If the apostles were the foundation and their goal, their objective was to communicate divine revelation and also to oversee the use of spiritual gifts and that stone, they're the, a foundation stone. And if Paul is the last apostle, which even the best charismatic scholars say, Paul is the last apostle, Wayne Grudem is who I'm talking about there, um, what room is there for apostles today? None. No one meets the qualification. No one is being used by God as a revelatory agent in the sense of new revelation. And there's no need to oversee miraculous revelatory gifts, right? That stone has been laid, it's, it's laid there, and now the church is being built up. All right. So moving right along briefly. Third stone. In this edifice, the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. Simultaneous with the ministry of the apostles was the ministry of the prophets. These were men who did one of two things. They either conveyed, spoke, preached, delivered new revelation, or they reiterated prior revelation. So you have new revelation or reiteration. New revelation or reiteration? It's a helpful way to think about when you read prophecy in the Bible. When you read the word prophecy, you ask, is this new revelation or is this reiteration? Well, the gift of prophecy in the sense of, of new revelation was the gift that included the receiving of a message directly from God through special revelation And the prophet then was guided in the declaration of that prophecy to the people and it had to be authenticated by God in some way. Okay? That's new revelation. Direct communication from God specifically having to do with God's unfolding plan of redemption. Right? It could either... Sometimes in in Scripture we see that it's a, a very major thing like the Gentiles are now one with the Jews or it could be something like Agabus' prophecy in Acts, where if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. All right, All of that is revelation from God being conveyed to the recipient. Reiteration is the declaration of prior revelation. It's a lot of R's. <laughs> Reiteration is the declaration of previous revelation. So here's the question. When Paul, in Ephesians 2, says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Is he talking about prophets who reiterate prior revelation? Or is he talking about prophets who were uniquely gifted by God to convey new revelation? Do you see the the question there? It's an important question. And And I think that we would all agree that it's prophets... The prophets that formed the foundation of Christ's church are the prophets who were receiving new revelation from God, right? This was a time, a transition in God's redemptive plan where God was speaking in a, in a very deliberate way about His plan. And He was clarifying things to His people. And in, in alignment with the prophecy of Joel 2, the, the gift of prophecy was no longer like your Isaiah and Jeremiah. An Amos kind of prophecy, where you have the school of prophets, but it, it 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 spread so that sons and daughters were prophesying, right? So the scope of this prophecy was new, and it was broadened to envelop more people. That does not mean that every individual had the ability to prophesy. It just means that God was speaking so powerfully in these moments, and that he, he that, that he had multiple avenues. Of of a of, uh, revelation that was going out to his church in this very initial stage, does that make sense? So Paul then in 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, "Pursue love, yet earnest and desire earnestly the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy." Right when you read that, you don't need to think, oh, "Man, I need to." pursue the ability to convey new revelation, right? That's what he's talking about, but that is not a a cue for you to go pursue new revelation. He's talking to this church at a specific juncture in God's unfolding plan, and he's saying, pursue this. This is a gift to God's church as it's being established specifically, and pursue it earnestly. First Corinthians um, is an important text, but also 1 Thessalonians five nineteen to twenty, Paul says, "Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic un- utterances, but examine everything carefully." So he says, "Don't despise prophetic utterances." Again, this is new revelation, but he's specifically speaking to a church in a specific context who is who is at the beginning phases of this new unfolding plan of God, where where the nations are hearing the gospel. And God is building and laying the foundation on the apostles and the prophets. And notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-20, he says, examine everything carefully. There are, are very strict requirements on what is prophecy. Uh, if it, it has to be orthodox, right? Even, I mean, at this early stage, it had to be orthodox. If it was not orthodox, Deuteronomy 13, 1-5 says, you take the person outside and you get rid of them. If the prophecy uh, wasn't accurate, Deuteronomy 18 to 20, uh, 18, 20, and 22, if the prophet spoke something that didn't come to pass, they were to be stoned. All right? That's because they were speaking on behalf of God. So at this phase, if someone you know, was a prophet, they would convey God's divine revelation to God's people. And notice, the apostles were there to regulate. Because Paul even regulates this gift of prophecy. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14, he's regulating this gift. How does prophecy work? In uh, 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty nine to 30 uh, Paul gives directives. If someone has a prophecy, the other prophets in the church are to critique it and make sure that it's orthodox, and make sure it's true. If not, we, we get them out of the church. We purge them from our church. Now, there is a, a definition of prophecy that's become popular where you have... We don't have time to talk about that. Um, but let me just say... If you are interested um, in knowing, if this is an ongoing struggle with you, specifically about prophecy, I would love to talk to you about it. I've got notes here that we can talk about. Um, The argument that prophecy is somehow fallible in the New Testament, that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that prophecy changes and now there's a type of prophecy that isn't actually from God and it can be wrong. Um, if, you, if you know that, you know that. If you don't, you're better off not knowing that that's an argument. Um, but just know that that is not true. That is not true. A prophet speaks on behalf of God, and he is to be judged by Deuteronomy 18. If he doesn't preach rightly and proclaim the truth rightly, the Scriptures say that he's to be stoned. Now, we're not doing that, right? And we're not doing that any more than we're looking for the, the Red River to, to part ways and we can walk through it into Arkansas. All right? That's not what we're doing because we know that's not where we're at. Now, here's the thing. God laid the foundation for his church, the apostles, the prophets, and Christ as the cornerstone. And that leaves us with the question, what do we do? Where are we in this thing, right? If this is God's way of of building his church, where are we? Well, Ephesians 2 states specifically that we are God's stones, right? This whole structure is being built up. If you look at 1 Peter 2, 4-10, to there are some important verses there that say we, we are being built up into the temple of the Lord as living stones on this foundation of the Christ, the apostles, and the prophets. We're being built up. And he says we're being built up specifically to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Spiritual sacrifices to God, which makes me think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God, right? If we have the Spirit of God, our lives will be continually offered up to God as a living sacrifice. In this sense, we no longer think about ourselves, right? The Spirit empowers us to live selflessly so that our primary concerns are as we exercise our gifting that God has given us and the Spirit empowers in the church, is to build one another up so that this whole structure is fashioned together. The church is built, established, and God's church and God's gospel goes to the ends of the world and the Gentiles come in. And what I want to say in conclusion here is that God's unfolding plan is the building of His church. right? And we're all a part of that. All right, let's pray. God, would you help us to be faithful in this task of building on the foundation of Christ, the apostles and the prophets? Lord, help us to not try to rebuild the foundation. Once that's laid, Lord, your desire for us is to build, is to, to, to be living stones on this foundation. And Lord, we want to be living stones who offer spiritual worship to you. We want to use our lives for your good and your glory. We don't want to waste it. So help us, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.